0: It is my pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Rania Kalik, who is an independent journalist reporting on The Underclass, which is probably most of us will ask her. She is a regular contributor at the Electronic Intifada, where she sits on the editorial board. Her work has also appeared in Truth Out, The In Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Al Jazeera America, The Nation Salon, Alternate, and many more. You can find her at raniakallek.com. That's R-A-N-I-A-N-I-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A-L-K-A- com and twitter at rania kalik she also co-hosts a podcast called unauthorized disclosure rania welcome to talk nation radio
1: Hey, David, thanks so much for having
0: me on. Thank you very much for coming on. You've covered great many topics in recent months, but uh, you have a special interest and expertise, I think, in questions about Israel and Palestine. Uh, and, in fact, you made some great connections recently in reporting on Israel's role in uh, the, the police riots in Baltimore. Can you, can you explain the connection?
1: Yeah. So, um, under the cover of counterterrorism training, almost every single U.S. law enforcement agency, from DHS to the FBI to NYPD, LAPD, and the Baltimore Police Department, have um, sent high-level officials to Israel to basically learn less to learn um, to learn lessons in occupation enforcement. Um, and this has been going on, you know. Like I said, it's been going on since basically nine eleven. Israel has really um, jumped on that and been able to um, sell its own um, its own tactics used against Palestinians and weapons as this like multi billion dollar homeland security industry, where it says, "Look at us! Like we've been dealing with terrorism, you know, for so long that we're experts in this." And then after nine eleven happens, all these. Um, countries were sort of looking to Israel to see, like, how Israel deals with Palestinian resistance to its colonial policies. So one of those, you know, one of the things that's happened or one of the outcomes of that have been U.S. police agencies traveling to Israel um, to study uh, tactics used against, you know, tactics used to suppress Palestinian protests, to suppress Palestinian armed resistance and whatnot. Um, And so no one really pays attention to this or wants to look into this. The mainstream media sort of ignores it and pretends it's not happening. Um, so there, we know very little about what's actually taking place on these trips, other than the information um, gleaned from press releases by the um, organizations that usually uh, organize these trips. Like, and the organizations that do this are are, um, are groups like the ADL, um, organizes these junkets for police officers, as well as the um, American Jewish Committee's project. They have this program called Project Interchange. Um, also, there's this um, other organization called JINSA that organizes a lot of these, um, you know, that really helps foster this relationship between U.S. police officers and Israeli the Israeli security apparatus. Uh, and JINSA is this, like, really actually right-wing neoconservative think tank that's based out of Washington, D.C. Um, just about any big neocon you can think of from, like, Dick Cheney, um, John Bolton, has sat on the board of JINSA at one point. So... Um. So yeah, these trainings are taking place, um, and so it's fair to say that you know um, a police department like Baltimore, and I detail like I wrote a piece about this how Baltimore police, um, both the city police and the county police, have participated in these junkets, um in the past uh, decade or so. Um, Baltimore City Police have twice sent like senior commanders to Israel to study how Israel. Um, enforces its occupation. And they explicitly say, like in these press releases, that they're doing this so they can bring these lessons back to their own police agencies. Um, so when we see what's happening in Baltimore, I mean, it's not to say that, you know, and I was in Baltimore. I went to Baltimore while it was under curfew and basically martial law, um, after, you know, there were riots, um, against, uh, the police killing of Freddie Gray and, it, you know, it's not to say that, the, that Israel is responsible for the behavior of Baltimore police. I mean, obviously, this country has a very deep history of, um, of police violence directed towards poor um, toward black communities and communities of color in general. Uh, but the fact that our, you know, our, very, our, our police departments that already have these issues dealing with, you know, the issues surrounding racism and are already killing citizens, um, particularly black citizens on a regular basis, are traveling to Israel to learn how to do these things more efficiently should concern people. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, I, you know, I feel like I'm really, you know, the only places you'll really see the kind of analysis that I think I gave on this is places like the electronic intifada and Mondowe's because no one wants to touch it.
0: And, and you found in particular that the Baltimore Police Department and several other sort of mid-Atlantic area police departments that went and participated in the riots in Baltimore uh, had in fact sent people for training in Israel, right?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, because Baltimore was basically, um I, I say, Baltimore was invaded, if you will, when, you know, the National Guard was called in, and then all these police departments, the surrounding police departments from nearby Counties and municipalities and states as well sent their forces, like donated forces, to Baltimore. So, for example, the New Jersey State, um, New Jersey State uh, Troopers, New Jersey, excuse me, the New Jersey State Police sent, like, I think it was 150 of its own officers to Baltimore to enforce this, you know, virtual police state that was um, that was deployed there. Uh, and the New Jersey State Police have a close relationship with Israel. They've gone on several trips. I think it was maybe three different trips um, in the last several years uh, to learn from Israel, how they do things. And similarly with the Pennsylvania State Police, they contributed, I think it was, 300 state troopers to Baltimore, and they've also gone to Israel to study counterterrorism. And I mean, when I say, I, I use the term counterterrorism very loosely. That's how these these junkets are advertised as their counterterrorism trainings. But... You know, when, when these officers go there, they're, you know, they're meeting with, they're getting briefed by Israeli, uh, by literally every single branch of the Israeli security apparatus. So, like, they're meeting with the border police. They're, meet, they're meeting with, um, with like, the Israeli army, um, you know, in the West Bank to see how they enforce the occupation there. They're meeting with Israeli police. Um, and they often meet with the Shin Bet, which is the Israeli secret police. Um, and sometimes, every once in a while, they get briefings from, like, the Mossad which is like the equivalent of, the, you know, Israel's version of the CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what's happening on these trips, and, you know, they, they're sometimes getting lessons in crowd control. Um, so it is It's really, really troubling, because we're talking about, um, you know, Israel is a state that is involved in, you know, it has a, a very clear system of apartheid. Um, it has a it has a military occupation that's been on blank for, for several decades now. And, it, you know, its entire... Um, you know, its entire existence basically is based around controlling and, and dominating Palestinians. And so that's what it's teaching. That's what it, it's imparting on our own police departments, And that should, that's I mean, that's very concerning to me.
0: Can you describe what you experienced and what you observed of police behavior on the ground there in Baltimore during the, the curfew? And, and what, if anything, looked like it came out of uh, Israeli police and military behavior?
1: Um... You know, that's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult to say what exactly came out of Israeli police behavior, but there are definitely similarities. in um, the tactics that were used, I mean, people, you know, there was tear gassing. I wasn't there when, when they were shooting tear gas, firing tear gas, which I believe was like the first night of the curfew. They were firing tear gas and rubber bullets. That's more like the kind of stuff that Israeli, um, the Israeli army does in the, in, in the West Bank. is fire, you know, firing sort of these quote-unquote less lethal um, weapons to disperse you know, protesters and to pacify them, and so that was one of the similarities. What I saw, though, was um, something I think oh, maybe a little bit more intense than that in Baltimore when I was there. Is um, you know, it's really unlike anything I've ever seen. It was just the place was surrounded. Like there was a, there was a night that people tried to break the curfew in front of City Hall, and it's like this this sort of quad area. I it's like a, a little bit of a courtyard that's outside of City Hall where the media had been stationed and set up, and the National Guard was sort of being headquartered out of and, and law enforcement in general. And so the curfew went into effect at 10 p.m., and the place was completely surrounded um, by police. There was maybe like 80 or so protesters who had stayed in the courtyard to try and break the curfew. Um, and uh, These riot police, um, you know, immediately, like, it's, like, 10.05, and a riot police line shows up of, like, 100 officers in riot gear um, facing the protesters. And then a few more minutes went by, and suddenly these riot police that were, like, and they must have been, like, a mobile unit of riot police, um, because they sort of showed up out of nowhere. They were, like, hiding. (laughs) They just came out of nowhere and started charging at the protesters and rushing them and just grabbing people and beating them um, with their batons. Um, it literally everywhere I looked, I saw a protester being, like, um, tackled <laughs> by several riot police officers. And then you just see them blindly yeah, hitting them with batons. And there was actually one interesting point where there was one officer who was, um, who was like, wearing a white shirt, and he wasn't in riot gear. But he was, like, participating in the beating. And so he was in this pile on top of a protester, and these riot police officers are just blindly swinging their batons, and they actually end up hitting their, their fellow officers. And he just, like, emerges out of this. Out of this like group of police with his like shirt on top and he's like rubbing his head because he got hit in the head so that was kind of interesting just to, like to show you the level of sort of indiscriminate <laughs> indiscriminate beatings the police were dishing out um but yeah and then like every single protester after they were hit were like taken into these paddy wagons and then and then the police sort of turned on the media i mean it was like and then when i say police i mean there was like a police helicopter hovering overhead circling around you know, telling people to get back, immediately media to get back. There's police on horseback. There was, I mean, I can't even tell you, there's countless riot police. Like, there were so many, I, I couldn't even count. There must have been hundreds. Um, and there was also the National Guard, and there was, there was also these stormtrooper-looking police officers who were, like, in armored vehicles driving around with these, like, massive assault rifles, and then these, um, these tear gas shooters. I honestly think the only reason they didn't shoot tear gas that night was because they had the place, like, circled. And surrounded, so if they had shot tear gas, they would have been shooting at each other. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was really like nothing. And I mean, I had been in, I, I visited Ferguson and I thought that was bad like what I saw in St. Louis. But this was like on a farm work, um, intense scale. And I think it speaks to the fact that this is the, this is like the chosen, this is how the state has chosen to respond to these uprisings that continue to take place against police violence, um, these Black Lives Matter protests. They've chosen to respond by basically like mobilizing a police state within hours wherever this kind of stuff takes place and it's actually really frightening um and i it's almost like they're just gearing up for like some big intense showdown uh because you know if you've noticed these uprisings these black lives matter uprisings are not going away it's like there's been sort of this domino effect these protests aren't going away especially since you know black people keep getting killed by the police (laughs) so i mean i think that we're going to see this happen um more frequently
0: well, I hope we're not going to see the the same thing happen from the police side of the of the conf- <laughs> confrontation. I, I can picture where that is. I think there's an old like war museum on the other side of the the square from the city hall, and in front of which there's like a statue honoring African Americans who have been in wars and so forth. But this is this is war, and the tactics of war coming home to the U.S. population, and us being treated as as the enemy, uh, and uh, somehow people don't want to, to recognize that that's what's going on. Um, you you actually got into something of a dispute over this. A newspaper has been checking your facts and, and getting their facts wrong, apparently. Can, can you explain what's happened?
1: Yeah, so PolitiFact, which is run by the Tampa Bay Times, um, you know, if you're not familiar with PolitiFact, it'll basically... You know, take statements and claims made by public officials or like media figures or organizations, and it'll fact check them. And then decide, it, you know, they have like a truth meter, and they'll decide how true it is or how false it is. And they have this thing, this, this language that they use that if, it's, if it ends up being a completely false statement, they'll say the pant, they'll call it pants on fire. That's all they'll rate it. And so um, the Nation of Islam research group had tweeted out something about, um, say, you know, claiming that Baltimore police had been trained by Israel. By the by the Shin Bet and Mossad, and so you know, and then to these, to these, you know, and and just to be clear, the Nation of Islam was not the only one tweeting this out. Um, This tweet didn't have very far reach. Uh, It's kind of a marginal organization, but they chose to take on that particular organization, I think, for a very specific reason. But so they took on this tweet, and they basically the tweet like um, had links to some page about the Baltimore County Police Department uh, training recruits offering like. Krav training to recruit Krav Maga um, like the Israeli army This it's martial art developed by the Israeli army um, and so the, obviously the link that they provided to their claims did not prove the claim that they made but nevertheless the Politifact took on the seat and concluded that not only was that a complete lie there, had, there were absolutely no ties between Israel uh, tra- no training ties whatsoever between Israel and the Baltimore police and so this is, you know, and that, that's actually, you know, it's quite the opposite, which I just explained. like, no, the Baltimore police have been on several training junkets to Israel, and so I contacted Politifact, the editor and the author, of that, the editor and the author of that article, and I, you know, I showed them. I said, hey, like, here's some links. This is, you know, that you guys are wrong. <laughs> you should correct this. There are training ties between Israel, the Baltimore police, and they concluded, they like adamantly refused. Um, they basically concluded that, you know, sending one that senior commanders uh, to learn from Israeli security forces does not qualify. Like it's insignificant, irrelevant, and doesn't qualify as training size, which is kind of weird. Because if you're sending a senior commander who's in charge of an entire division um, to go learn from you know from Israeli from the Israeli army, um, and they're bringing that back to their department, I mean that that, that is pretty clear cut. Um, but you know it's completely debatable exactly what information. What kind of training is being given to them, and what they're actually bringing back—that's totally debatable. But regardless, you know that's the that that qualifies as a as like you know a connection, a tie, a training tie. So yeah, they just they completely refuse to make any correction whatsoever, and so I wrote about it, (laughs) and I said that their pants are on fire, (laughs) which they are.
0: Uh, It would appear you've documented it, and they are. Uh, We're speaking with Rania Kalik, who you can read her writing at Electronic Intifada and at her website, ranyakalik.com. Um... I wanted to get to uh, some other topics that you've written about, but sort of sticking with the theme of horrible things uh, Israel has <laughs> done, uh, you have an article about Israel targeting children with uh, with drone strikes, with drone murder, um, which is, uh, you know, in the United States, we know virtually nothing about intentions and plans and who's been targeted, and it's all supposedly accidental, who gets killed. But uh, but here you have an article about targeting Children, um, can you explain?
1: Yeah. So um, there was a report by Defense for Children International that basically went through, um, you know, the killings, uh, the the, the fifty one day long massacre uh, that Israel inflicted on the Gaza Strip last year, which killed over twenty two hundred Palestinians, including over five hundred children. Um, so it went through the children, it went through the deaths of children, and it like and what it found is that. Um, Israel killed like a, a really alarming number of children in drone strikes. 164 of the uh, 535 um, children who were killed were killed in drone strikes. Um, to be, I mean, and then, you know, another like 225 of those children were killed in like airstrikes from warplanes. planes. Um, the vast majority of those who were killed were killed while they were in their homes with their families, um, like sheltering, eating, sleeping, playing. Um, and, but specifically, with the drone strikes, what uh, DCI Palestine um, like the argument they made, which is very compelling, is that you know it, why. So Israel is like Israel the world's number one exporter of drones. Um, it export since like nineteen eighty five. It's exported something like sixty five percent of the world's drones. Um, so that's a that's a big statistic. I mean, Israel is not a big country. It's like a very tiny country. Um, so it's it, it, the fact that it's like. It's, really sending more drones around the world than the U.S. is, is very strange. Um, but there's a reason for that, but I'll get to it. But the point is is that one of Israel's major selling points for its drones and one of its biggest justification for using them so often in the Gaza Strip is that they have really high-tech um, like camera technology so you can see what's happening on the ground in real time um, to the point where you, know, you can get a clear image of who you're shooting at, of who you're targeting whether it's, like, uh, you know, an adult or a child, or woman or a man. Um, and so in a lot of these drone attacks, Israel targeted children when they were running, uh, you know, for shelter, like in the street, or when they were, um, you know, when they were, like, running towards an ambulance, um, when they were on the rooftops of their homes. So the fact that they could see what they were targeting and they... They ended up using drones to target, you know, to hit children. Led to the conclusion that they were targeting them deliberately, um, which isn't surprising. This is kind of like, it, you know, a part of Israel's policy that we're learning more and more about is really like legalizing uh, the attempt to legalize the targeting, the deliberate targeting of civilians in a lot of, um, you know, really uh, a lot of really twisted ways. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's what this place is This part, and you know, it's, it's very, it's really disturbing because. Um, you know, we talk like about our own drone policy in this country. We we have this. You know, Obama has really embraced targeted killings as the centerpiece of his counterterrorism policy. Um, targeted killings are an Israeli invention. Um, I, you know, Israel. Say, you know, and Israel likes to say it invented all kinds of things. It'll say, you know, as Israel will say, we invented Twitter. You know, we invented a cure to cancer. But they actually did invent targeted killings, and they take credit for it. Um, it was like a. It was a method used. To take out uh, leaders of, Pal- of the Palestinian um, resistance to Israel's colonial, um, to Israel's colonial policies, especially during the Second Intifada, and so that like legal framework that Israel created around targeted killings has been adopted by the U.S. and really legitimized by the international community at this point, which is very disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's and so it is very. Um, It's a very interesting point that Israel used drones to target so many children because a lot of its policies end up getting adopted in many ways by, you know, the people selling its weapons to.
0: Yeah, fifteen years ago, the United States government and courts and White House would denounce Israel for this sort of thing uh, yeah. until the United <laughs> States started doing it, and then they just sort of quietly stopped criticizing Israel for doing it. But it, but it's done in the United States with a sort of a humanitarian face on it, uh, and all of the deaths of children and strikes on wedding parties are, are accidental and incidental and collateral. Uh, but it, it, it was struck me during the the last assault on. Gaza, how many top Israeli officials were just openly advocating genocide? Uh, and this week we have this uh, story about the new Israeli uh, Secretary of War, so-called Defense Minister, uh, promising to kill lots more civilians uh, and maybe to nuke Iran. I uh, mean, what's with these people? <laughs> so, um, you
1: know, yeah, the Israeli Defense Minister Moshe alone. Uh, last week, uh, at a, at a conference, I mean, completely openly, there's no shame around this kind of rhetoric. Israeli officials say these insane things, increasingly say these insane things, but like they never get a, Yeah, have you seen a single media headline about what you just said?
0: No, um, not I in the US, except for
1: from, like the, yeah, like, except for, yeah, well, except for like from like alternative media, yeah. Um, it's kind of insane. And it's, yeah, so he, he said he, he threatened to nuke He also, he also promised that in any future, um, any future war with Gaza or Lebanon, that Israel would deliberately take out civilians, would deliberately kill civilians, including children. Um, and you know this is not new. Israel's policy since like Israel like has like a military doctrine that it um, that is called the Zahia doctrine. Um, Dahia is a neighborhood in Beirut that Israel basically flattened in the two thousand six war on Lebanon. Um, and the idea is that um, as you know, to, to maintain its deterrent. Israel, um, the Israeli military basically like targets deliberately target civilian infrastructure, um, not just to maintain its deterrence, but also to try and turn the civilian population against whoever Israel's enemy at the time is, whether it's Hezbollah or Hamas. And that military doctrine was applied to Gaza. In um Operation Cast lead in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, which killed fourteen hundred Palestinians, almost you know, nearly four hundred children were among them. Um, the vast majority of them were civilians as well. This is why when Israel's hitting Gaza you know, repeat, you know, periodically every two years, it seems to be the pattern. So many civilians are being killed because this is part of the policy. Um and Israel's come up with ways to basically shift um, the goalposts of international law. It has the entire divisions devoted to Uh, devoted to twisting, like basically using international law to legitimize targeting civilians. And it was the most intense last summer, more than ever, because I think that that has to do not only because of its intended policy to target civilians, but also with this right-wing shift um, among Israel's government and its leadership. You mentioned genocidal rhetoric coming from Israeli officials last summer. Um, One of those officials, Ayelet Shackett, who is this, you know, rising star in Israel in the Jewish Home Party, which is this, like, proto-fascist, ultra-nationalist Zionist party. Um, she last summer basically called for the slaughter of Palestinian mothers to prevent them from birthing little snakes. Um, that is the language she endorsed, And you didn't, you know, and, and so now the Sinyahu just appointed her as Justice Minister, if you can believe that. Um, so it's, these are the kinds of people that are in the Israeli government that are running Israel. It's people who endorse genocide against Palestinians. Um, Netanyahu also appointed a man named Eli Ben-Dahan uh, to be in charge of basically overseeing the occupation in the West Bank. Um, and he is a lawmaker that has, um, in the recent past, like in 2013 I think it was called openly called Palestinians, so, you know, call them subhuman and refer to them as beasts. Um, so these are the kind of people that are in charge of Israel now. And it's, it's kind of actually like it really, it really blows my mind the, uh, like what, they, what they can get away with openly saying without garnering a single headline in the U.S. corporate press. I mean, you can imagine if, like, an Iranian leader, you know, would have threatened to nuke Israel, the kind of response that would get, um, or, or would have threatened genocide against a group of people. Um, so, yeah, Iranian
0: guess, leaders yeah. get that, w- even when they haven't said it, you know, <laughs> right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Iranian leaders don't. You know, when they don't say it, like that, that stuff gets gets headlines. So, you know, I just don't understand. I'm, it, it kind of is really frightening at this point because it's like, what does is an Israeli leader have to promise to do to civilians or have to say about genocide for like anybody to care? Who's in the mainstream? Um, and so I'm still waiting to find out
0: what that limit is. I, I think they would have to turn against the Republicans or something. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, we have just a few minutes left. Uh, Rania Kalik, uh, are there are there any efforts, activist efforts, or should there be uh, to get police departments in the U.S. to stop sending officers for training by this country's government that, uh, that openly advocates genocide? I mean, should that be taken on as a piece of demilitarization the U.S. police and, and stopping training by the U.S. military and so-called homeland security or or separately as part of a BDS effort? Uh, or, or is anything like that happening? Because it seems outrageous to be sending police to be trained by that crowd.
1: Well, you know, I think that this issue has gotten a lot more attention since the Ferguson uprising and since police violence has been you know, such a mainstream issue. And also since it's more like uncompromising militant attitude from younger activists against police brutality is um, is spreading. Um, there is this like op- there there is this like um, this acknowledgement of recognizing the connections between you know the fact that like op- the oppressors are working together, um, and that means that you know the people who are being oppressed need to work together. Um, I see that like flourishing. There's been a lot of Palestine to Ferguson um, solidarity that's taking place. Um, There's also, like, on U.S. campuses, the Students for Justice in Palestine um, chapters have really become, you know, if anything, really become, like, anti-racist, anti-militarization business, especially at universities that are close to the U.S.-Mexico border, where Israeli companies um, are providing, you know, technology to use to militarize the border. Um, So, and then, there's, you know, there's been a lot of activism around, you know, connecting those, and then also, like, there's been, like, black student union groups getting together with students. For Palestine. So there's all these connections taking place that I think have the potential to hopefully get to that point where we start advocating against um, those police departments, you know, working together. And then there's also, like, people in Oakland where um, – What's
0: it called, that big conference that happens
1: every year where police train together? Yeah, uh, uh, urban something? Urban Shield. War, yeah, War
0: Resisters League has really <laughs> taken that on. Um, no, exactly. these, are, these are all uh, wonderful ideas that we will have to pursue the next time you're on this program. Rania Kallek, her website is at com. We'll have the links at talknationradio.org. Ranya, thank you for coming on the program.